Well, welcome and good morning, Trinity Bible Church, as well as those who are attending or family that's visiting. Uh, we are continuing in the Gospel according to Matthew. We're starting in chapter 16 today. Uh, 16, uh, 1 through 12 will be the reading from this morning. If you are uh, new here, if you are visiting for the first time, I'll read through the scriptures in entirety and then give an opportunity for the congregation to pray uh, silently uh, and individually. Uh, it's a perfect time to confess unconfessed sins. And not just in a general nature, in a very specific nature. Also, it would be a perfect time if you are in contention with a loved one or someone else in the congregation. Rather, while everyone is praying, take the opportunity to go outside to the library or upstairs. Discuss whatever matters might need to be discussed and reconcile. And then come back into the time of public worship. God's people are called to public worship with a right mind and a right heart, undistracted, focused on His Word, focused on the celebration of our Redeemer and Savior, Christ our Lord. So as I read, and I will end, take this time to pray earnestly that the Spirit would guide your heart and your mind and opening it to a truer understanding of His Word, drawing you closer to Him. And if you are not a believer, you're not a part of the church and you're here, I pray during this time uh, of prayer that you consider the words you'll hear today and contend rightly with them in your own sinfulness. After we take this time of silent prayer, I'll pray for us corporately and enter into the time of the Word. Looking now, reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gather? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. For then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Please take this time to pray. 
Heavenly Father, as this assembly gathers to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ through prayer, through song, through fellowship, through the ministry of the word, Lord, I I pray our worship would be pure of heart and focused in mind. That God, our union in Christ that we share, regardless of background, regardless of who we once were, we all know and acknowledge that we were equally fallen and degenerate in our sinfulness. And we have been made inheritors of the kingdom. We have been transformed into sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we have an inheritance waiting for us in God's kingdom that here and now we are part of as the seed that is growing. And as such, we've, in this time of of transition, in waiting for the kingdom to come in full, we are called to pursue holiness. We are empowered by God, the Holy Spirit, to fight sin and temptation and pursue holiness. We're given a fellowship of other saints who are, who are also on that journey, put together to strengthen one another, to challenge one another, to encourage one another. Not in toleration of sin, but in full pursuit of godliness. God, I pray you bind this fellowship and other fellowships together through these truths. Broken people put together with other broken people, made whole by Christ. And while still here in this fallen kingdom as sojourners, Lord, strengthen us in our weakness. And God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you illuminate our hearts and minds to the truth of your word today, that we would be continually transformed by the sanctifying work of the Spirit and the power of your holy and true word to be formed more and more into the image of Christ and more and more putting to death that which is sinful in us. And God, I pray for the unbelievers in our midst. I pray through your providential plan and power that today is the time that they would be drawn and transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all this time with glory to your name, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If there is ever a time for a need of the church to be a discerning church, as an as a, as a organism, as the, the church universal, the idea of being able to discern what is godly and what is not. Such a time as now. 
Yet I fear, I fear that a over-stimulated, over-distracted, an overly entertained church lacks discernment. There are too many times where we find ourselves in a place not like the disciples who are of little faith. More than often we find ourselves in times, I fear, where we are testing God. So I pray as we read these verses today, we would be challenged. Challenged by the story that we read. Challenged by the truths found within it. And comforted by the knowledge that God is not finished with us yet. Looking at verse 1. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him, Jesus. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, this may seem a strange, unnecessary detail, but for the careful reader, you would understand the Sadducees and the Pharisees had been hating each other for a century. Everything the Pharisees believed, the Sadducees believed the opposite of it. They'd been in contention for leadership of the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious body of first century Judaism for a century. At the time of what was happening here in the Gospels, the Sadducees had control of the Sanhedrin, although they were the minority party. But the Pharisees had the ear and the minds of the common person. And so what you will see often, the Sadducees were were political animals. They were involved with the politics of Rome. They believed that only the law was that which you should read and be guided by. The Pharisees believed in the whole scope of the Old Testament. And the Pharisees were more concerned with individual or personal holiness. These two groups hated each other, contended with each other. And so when you read just this minor detail, as Jesus has been in Canaanite land, He's been in Gentile land, and he's now coming back into the principalities of Judea. He's met with a unified front. So what is unspoken in this is that there's been talk between these parties. And while they have hated each other for a century, they've decided there's something we hate more. So let's combine our resources and our forces to face that which is more dangerous. Messiah, the Christ, the one they said they were waiting for, the one they said that they were long-awaited deliverer. And yet what they have found is they are losing people, the crowds that follow him and come back with words of miracles. They've been there when they've seen the miracles, when he's healed on the Sabbath, And they watch the miraculous happen and they say, he's breaking the Sabbath. They follow him around. They watch his disciples who are following him, not follow made up laws that they say and have equaled the law of God. And they go, look at him. He hates the law. And now he leaves for a while and they would not. 
in their wildest dreams, follow him into the dirty Gentile lands that he went, where he performed miracles and fed the hungry. And he comes back, and now he's sullied even more by having whatever he did there in those lands. And they come to confront him. And it's very clear in the meaning of the text. The Pharisees, the scribes, I'm sorry, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and that's another thing. If you look at another, the wrong chapter, and that chapter also begins with the Pharisees and someone testing Jesus. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came in to test them, test him. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. The natural question is, how many do you need? They've watched multiple. They've heard witness accounts of even more. Some of them in John will actually become disciples of Jesus. So the word or the factual nature of these events, how they would have been measured in Israel, if there was a miracle or if there was a prophet with the witnesses of two or more and it being confirmed by the word, all that's happened over and over and over again for years now. The evil that envelops their heart. Their desire to contend with God. And here's the sobering part. They had the word. They had the traditions. They had the law, the prophets, the writings. They had the patriarchs. They had it all. And they were told to wait for one by Isaiah to look just like this. And the hate and the evil in their heart. They seek to contend with God. So they approach the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And they say, show us a work from heaven. And seeking to test him. It's the same word that's used for tempt. There's a correlation, but reality is, is that they're expressing a worldview. And that worldview is we will not believe unless on command... This man performs a miracle of God in public that we see, and we all agreed that was a miracle of God. Now we'll start believing him. Look at Jesus' answer. He answered them. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. An evil, an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. The gospel according to Mark adds the line, and he gave a deep sigh before he responded. This exasperation of this. But Jesus answers them not by performing 
a parlor trick. He lets them know you like to look at, you've learned to discern in the natural world when the sky is doing this, this is what the day will look like. You've also discerned by observing the natural world when the sky looks like this, it's going to rain. Yet you have not discerned to understand the epochs or the time or the history of what God is doing. So while these leaders of Israel and religious and political life come to him and challenge him and say, in essence, the only way we're going to get on your side, Jesus, if you perform a miracle right now, right in front of us, then maybe we'll believe. And he says, oh, you know how to look and see what the weather's going to do. You don't know how to observe what God's doing. I tell you, no, getting ahead of myself, take too much time. Inflammatory. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. This is a a repetition, the entirety of his uh, repudiation of this this desire for what they want to see is already been used in chapter 12, way back when we were there a year ago. And so he uses the same phrase. The sign of Jonah, uh, people have kind of different views on. And so I'm going to give you the two major, and then kind of tell you where I think it's much easier expression of how the rest of the gospel plays out. The first one is that uh, Israel is, is, the sign of Jonah is the sign of judgment, the sign of the prophet um, going to Assyria, to call judgment on the ungodly. Uh, this is was a popular opinion earlier in certain parts of the Eastern Church and millennia ago. Uh, what it doesn't do very well is the understanding that all of Assyria repented, or all of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. And so they would say, that, well, what we're talking about is the, the cumulative judgment that would come a generation later under Nahum, to which you would say, well, why didn't you say that? But So more than likely, the most clear reading of this, as it's mentioned here and elsewhere in the New Testament, the sign of Jonah has to do with the three days. The three days being in the belly of the fish. And so Jesus is referencing the sign that they will get is going to be the sign of his death, burial, and ultimately his resurrection. And the reality of why that is a good reading of this is going through the entirety of the gospel and into the book of Acts. We see clearly even that sign will not make them believe. Even that sign will do nothing to the evil unbelief and rebellion in their heart. Even then... The miracle of resurrection and being seen for weeks afterwards, publicly being seen to ascend back at the right hand of the Father in the same area where he was murdered, will not change the hearts of his opponents. When you're reading through things like that, the sobering reality of the power of sin should not be lost on you. The power of sin on the heart of man should never be underestimated. Not in people 
that you dislike, not in people who are your best friends, not in your those you love the most. Sin is an insanity. So he tells them, you want me to do a party trick? And you look at the sky and you know how to look at these things, but you clearly don't know the work of God when it's right before your eyes. And so the only sign you will get will be the sign that is coming. And it kind of ends there and then moves on to the next section. It says, when the disciples reached the other side and had forgotten to bring any bread, but it's still in the subject of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? So in this, we have another contrast. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and those seeking a sign within this generation of Israel, he calls now twice evil and adulterous, meaning the the act of adultery of breaking the covenant bond between um, the the spouse is always used both throughout the Old Testament to show covenant covenant infidelity on the part of Israel. Israel is often referred to as a a wanton bride or someone who was always seeking to break the covenant they had with Yahweh, with the nations that surrounded them generation by generation. And so the illustration here by calling them adulterous is to say, you're just seeking God everywhere else except right where he is. You're seeking to worship anything and everything around you. In Old Testament Israel, that meant they even worshipped gods, foreign gods, fake, false gods that demanded the sacrifice of their own children. Everywhere else they looked, even back to Egypt, everywhere else they looked to worship something except the God who rescued them. And so he calls them evil, adulterers or idolaters. And here, it's pretty important. He simplifies the disciples by saying they have little faith or small faith, meaning they're they're evidenced by the constant questions, the constant doubts, the constant what seems forgetfulness of the previous miraculous work that they've seen over and over again. And so he counts them as those that have small faith. And so when Jesus tells them, after this interaction, this attempted testing by these Sadducees and Pharisees, he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which is about their teaching. And the the disciples, sorry, the disciples say, we forgot to bring bread. Jesus is hungry. We forgot to bring bread. Who brought the bread? It's probably Judas's responsibility. But even this, even this, Jesus is is gentle with his disciples. 
Oh, you of little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you yet not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 or how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? The, the, the clear emphasis point of that is him to say, haven't you seen that a word from my mouth produces all the food that anyone needs? It's all you need is to be with me and your physical hunger will be taken care of. How do you not see I wasn't talking about eating Pharisees, you know, loaf bread that you find in the local deli. That's not what he was talking about. The disciples had yet to know, yet to see all their physical needs, all that they needed spiritually, all that was there by this teacher who had drawn them and chosen them out of their life and bound them to him and said, follow me. They still weren't understanding. Everything they needed was found in Christ. But he has a warning for them. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, this is an abnormal sermon for me. I don't generally make lists. Here's some examples. Some of you are like, finally, something helpful. Others are like, we like your chaotic style. But I felt it was necessary here because it's talking about being able to discern the times in the earlier thing in the earlier portion of the message. And then afterwards, it's talking about being aware of false teaching. And I have to say, as the beginning introduction, if there was ever a need for a church to have the ability to discern what is good, what is right, what is true, what is beautiful, all found in God, And be able to discern it that which is sinful and evil and foul and ungodly. It's now. No generation of the church has been so distracted. So at ease with being comfortable. No, it's too late. It's coming. (laughs) We are slaves to technology. And we lie to ourselves by telling ourselves, oh, I do good things on this. I fixed my sink with a YouTube video. What else did you do? What else did you use it for? The average adult with a fully formed prefrontal cortex 
picks up their phone 150 times a day. That's average. Some of you are like, rookies. Think about that. Think about how distracted your mind is. And when I say, hey, you should just try reading the book of Romans in one sitting from a book, you're like, easy. I, the author Paul. What was that? We've... We've created ourselves in our own image. And we are both Frankenstein, the doctor, tinkering on ourselves and creating a monster. Understand discerning the times. If you are the type of person who now feels when you get stressed or things are getting in, what you need to do is laugh at videos. Throw your phone in the toilet. If you're the type of person where at the end of the day, all you can think of is, I got to watch my show, I got to watch my show, and you got to sit down, you got to watch your show, you got your drink, you got your food, and the show is filled with ungodliness. Oh, but the writing is good. What is that? Where's your seriousness? Where's our seriousness of faith? How are you able to sit from somebody that is an unbeliever that watches the same things you do, acts the same way you do, and they sit down and go, I am hopeless, and you tell them what? Their hope is in a new app? If you look no different, if you live no different, if you speak no different from they are, they won't ask you what the hope is. Because you look and talk and act no different than they do. And you show that you have not, just like the Pharisees and Sadducees, discerned the times you are in. Your life is this. And all you're doing is extending, doing nothing. Shaping nothing. Crippling your mind. I don't like pragmatic things. When people make pragmatic points to me, I usually tell them that's not very spiritual. I'm going to make you a pragmatic point. Measure. Take an honest measuring. Take a day. Have a counter, like an old school clicky that you keep on your neck. Every time you touch your phone. See what happens when the stress of the day happens, whenever it is, where do your thoughts go? Where do your actions take you? What are the words that come out of your mouth? And then also rightly contend with how much time, I mean time, measured time, not occurrences, how much time you spend praying, reading your word, and allowing it to transform your mind through meditating on it. These are the ancient paths of godliness. And right now, the church doesn't look very godly. It looks very similar to everything else in the West. 
Our worship is supposed to be conditioned on a right dealing with self and a putting to death of sinful habits. The Pharisees thought that what it meant was pretending to be holy. They didn't even follow the conditions that they put on everyone else. The Sadducees believed that the law could be used as a political weapon to give them power and prestige in the Roman world. And so when, when Jesus, who's now talking about his death, burial, and resurrection, is training these disciples of small faith that they are going to lead the church, the burgeoning of the kingdom of God after he is gone. And what has he seen from them so far? Yeah, you, you walked on water. Yeah, you did all these miraculous things, but we forgot to bring bread. These are the future leaders of the church, empowered by the Spirit. And they're going to be faced with the reality that one of the greatest things they need is to discern what is good and what is evil, what is of God and what is of the world. And so the authors of the New Testament would list the idea of testing, discerning. One of the more interesting ones, everyone often memorizes this, Romans 12. We remember the living sacrifice part. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here it comes. Do not be conformed or shaped to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by, hear it, testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Rememorize that verse. Focus on the aspect of testing this. What is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? Contending with thoughts, with actions, stop for a moment and say, what is good? What is acceptable? What is beautiful in the eyes of God? Remember that God has given you away, according to Paul, to flee sin. Because nothing that overcomes you is uncommon to man. Flee. But you can't do that if you haven't equipped yourself in any way. I can say all these things, discern, discern, know what is good, know what is evil, don't do evil, do good. And you're like, okay, that sounds good. And then what happens three hours from now? Probably thought I was going to answer that. 1 Thessalonians 5.21. starting at 20. Do not despise prophecies, but test, same word, test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. 
You see where you see in the the you see in the trend. Test what is good. If you find that it's evil, flee. Test what is from God. If you find that it's not, flee. Test, test, test. What is the job of the person growing in Christ? To test that all that is before them is from God for the good of God, for the glory of God. Now, toward the end of this abnormal sermon of mine where I give advice. I looked at, I wrote my own advice, and then I looked at several voices from church history. And so I'm going to choose one of them because the first point of this advice, any of you that know me would be like, oh, really, Ken? So this isn't mine. This is a dead person. And no, they're not Dutch. Number one, points to help develop discernment. Now, all of this, of course, is umbrellaed by the fact that you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit, you have the Word, you're reading the Word, you're putting to death sin in your life, but these are other kind of salient points to help. And I didn't pick this list because of his number one choice, although you might not believe me. Be a historian. (laughs) Read church history to gain insight from the church in other lands and other times. Read secular history as well to give you a better idea how people have interacted with the church and viewed the church throughout history. Obviously, if you've been around me at all, I'm a church history fan. And it's not to lord information that I have over those who don't read church history. I want everyone to read it. It's a a final pragmatic step when discerning how do I deal with this issue. It seems confusing to me. I'm reading the Bible. I'm praying about it. What else can help me? I've asked advice. More likely than not, whatever the issue is, it's been dealt with in the past in the history of the church. And you can see how saints, people who are also at one time sojourners in the faith, had dealt with that particular issue. History is invaluable in the pushing away with history as a serious subject at all for your children should be alarming. History keeps you humble. Second point, listen to voices that you disagree with. This goes on to talk about philosophers and things like that. Don't just listen to everyone who agrees with you. Because if all you do is listen to everyone who agrees with you, you're not going to actually know what the other person believes that you're supposed to be witnessing to. Now, that doesn't mean go out, if you haven't, If you don't have a copy, go make sure you make rigorous study of the Communist Manifesto or the Book of Mormon or the Pearl of Great Price. You should know what other people believe, people that have views that are antithesis or against Christianity. But don't be scared of it. 
And this is number three. Find solitude. I've mentioned this before. Using scripture, consider the big issues of our day. I know a lot of you watch a lot of news. And probably a lot of fist shaking and anger and maybe discussions at bed at the world and it's going here and it's going there. But how often have you read the scriptures, made a list of the issues of the day as you see them, read the scriptures, prayed, and chewed down to the bone the issues of the day and how a Christian man and woman should contend and think about them? That's meditating. That's finding answers through the word. That's trusting God through a disciplined exercise. And finally, this is number four. When trying to discern the times, and for our age, I would say when this was written, it was a book. But I talk to people all the time, like, I don't read, I, I listen to them, audiobooks. A book, whether read and from a codex or listened to, but more often than not, for us, a movie, a TV show a speech by a politician or any other type of leader. Ask these questions. Find the foundation of what they're saying or what the show or the movie is trying to push. So ask the following questions. What is this that I'm reading, watching, hearing, saying about man? How does that match up with what the Bible says about man? Who is he? Generally good, generally bad. If generally good, where do you get that idea from? If generally bad, where does that idea come from? Match it up between what it says and what the Bible teaches and go and discern. This is good and true and beautiful and this is not and this is why. Or this agrees with the Bible Maybe because the person that wrote it is a believer, or maybe by accident, and it shows some of God's fingerprints in the mind of man in general revelation. The next question. What is the essential nature of the world? Watch the news. What does the majority of the news say the essential nature of the world is? It's a living organism. It's breathing, and, and, and in many places, we're like parasites, sucking it of all of its resources. What does the Bible say the world is? Part of God's cosmos, part of his created order. Something that is going to be recreated when Christ comes. It's in a state of degradation or decay because sin has utterly infected it. So don't disagree with the populist idea of the world as living organism that's being sucked dry by parasites called homo sapiens. Reject it because it actually devalues what the earth is. Part of the cosmos. Part of the created order. Part of something that will also be rescued by Christ. <clears throat> In this one. Is there hope?
if you're a, I forgot, it's like the most pervasive, ridiculous thing in the world. Oh, social media person. Is there hope in social media? Is it doing what it said it was going to do? Bring people closer? Get you in touch with old friends? Make communication easier? You feel like your relationships have gotten better? Or worse? Is there hope in TV and movies? The biggest avenue of where our eyes and minds go? You're crazy if you say yes. What God's most shows in movies today is nihilism. Some of you might call it nihilism, but you'd be wrong. And what that teaches is shades of gray. No good, no evil, God is dead. Maybe you've Unfortunately, watch some shows like that in the last decade or so. Here's the good guy or girl. Amazing, upward, stalwart. They're the one that's going to rescue everybody. Oh, they're dead. And so is everyone else who's good. There's no point in anything. There's no hope. J. Gresham Machen said that you could identify the values of a culture by what they call art. What's the value of our culture? But for a people... who are indwelled by the Spirit of God, who are captivated by his beauty, by his love, by his mercy, by his grace, are supposed to shine by the difference of their God-empowered lives in all of the darkness. That's the world the church was birthed into. This one will make some of you mad. The world is not getting worse and worse. I know probably a lot of you disagree with me on that. And I'll tell you why. Because the kingdom, Christ said, is a seed that's growing. Now, evil's always going to be around it until the kingdom comes in full. Evil... And Satan are always going to adapt to trip up the people of God, as he always has. Yet, the seed continues to grow. At the writing at the end of the New Testament, the global reach of Christianity was right around the Mediterranean Sea. Think about that. Think about the population of the world at that time who had no idea about the gospel. And Jesus saying, my kingdom is going to grow, and it's going to grow until a full measure of the Gentiles are brought in. And now we live in a day and age where the gospel has gone global. 
And there are over two dozen types of interpretive organizations, the best known are Wycliffe, Tyndale, who are actively, all of them working on dozens of languages that are being found in, and then creating and writing and translating the Bible in those languages. Never before has the world had so many translations of the Bible, has people had so much ability to have the Bible. So it shouldn't surprise you that never before in history has there been so much opposition to the word of God. The world isn't getting worse and worse. It's always been, since the fall, bad. In light of all this, I ask, I beg, for the members of Trinity Bible Church to take a firm measure of your life, a firm measure of what you would call frivolity, time spent wasted in distraction, that could be better spent in the word, in prayer, in fellowship with one another, in building discernment for the world around you. God needs us to be prepared for the encounters he has prepared for us. And for that, he needs a discerning people, a people of hope, a people that know what the creation is, where it all is going why people should be coming out of darkness into light, why people should look at us and go, they're different by the way they speak, by the way they talk, and it's genuine, it's earnest. It's not like the Pharisees are who, are, who are, I'm holy, you should be holy too. No, it's, it's a quiet life, as Paul calls us to live. The ordinary means of life where the Spirit shines through us. That's what God calls the church to be. Do you see it? Do you acknowledge it? I'll work on me. You work on you. And then we'll all work together for the glory of God. Deal? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for a joy and a peace that comes with a seriousness of faith. A right contending with our own sinfulness. A right contending with doing away with the things that are sinful, that are frivolous, and that hold us back. God, strengthen us and guide us. Empower us to pursue you in holiness with the full knowledge that, yes, we will fail and we will sin and we will err. And we know that your grace is is immeasurable and is always there to lift us up when we fall. For we are yours and our hope is in you. 
you know, give us a spirit to fight our sinfulness, a desire for holiness, fully acknowledging our sinfulness and that we'll continue to fail, but also fully pursuing putting it to death. This is the life we're called to. And through lives like this, the world is transformed through the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray as we continue and we end this time of worship that you are glorified in our midst. In Christ's name, amen.